Thanks for joining us for this week's message here at NAPNAS. We're glad you could tune in with us. We pray that as you listen, you walk away from this podcast encouraged, inspired, and uplifted by the power of God and His Word. So a pastor, a colleague of mine, uh, shared a story about counseling a a, a woman who uh, 20 years before had uh, been unfaithful to her husband. And for years that sin had haunted her. And the pastor was the first person that she had ever told, it was the first person she'd ever told about what she had done. And as they talked and prayed, uh, he recommended that she tell her husband uh, what she had done. This was not going to be easy for her. But as they talked and prayed, she promised that she would tell her husband. She said this, Pastor, I trust you enough to do what you're asking me to do. But if my marriage falls apart as a result, I want you to know I'm going to blame you. And he said she didn't smile when she said that. And that's when the pastor said that he began to pray with a high degree of intensity. It's like that sometimes when you're doing your best to to give advice And he prayed this, Father, if I gave her dumb advice, forgive me and clean up my mess. He saw her shortly after that, though. And he said she looked 15 years younger. And of course, the natural uh, question they ask is, is what happened? How, How did it go? And the lady told him, when I told him, he replied, that he had known about that incident 20 years ago. And he was just waiting for me to tell him so he could tell me how much he loved me. And then she said this, he forgave me 20 years ago and I have been needlessly carrying all this guilt for all those years. Already been forgiven, and yet didn't live in the reality of that forgiveness. We're taking a couple months to understand what living in the goodness of God looks like. If you remember last week as we kind of opened this series, and it's this intentional, this Psalm 103 is this intentional Uh, The beginning is intentional in drawing ourselves or causing ourselves to concentrate on the truth of God so that we can live in the goodness of God. As he says, you know, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, forget not all his benefits. And this psalm just is saturated with this idea of who God is, what his disposition to us is, and how we should live in light of that. And we realize that the God that we have, that is, 
and who has called us to be his children is a God that is primarily recognized as good. You know, one of the first things that the psalmist brings up in understanding what it is to live in the goodness of God is this idea of forgiveness. This living in the goodness of God is exactly what, what is it we've talked about? It's the only thing that can truly give us quality of life. The life that God has designed for us to live. The abundant life that Jesus promised. I have come to give you life and to give it abundantly. It all starts with, is lived in, and ends with. It's all in the goodness of the Father. It's not in what we can create or how hard we can work or what we can accomplish. It's all lived in. If you want to live abundantly, you can go nowhere else but the goodness of God. The goodness of God is what brings quality of life, abundant life. It's the goodness of God that then inspires us, motivates us to continue to open up our heart and life to the lordship of Christ in our life. The ought of obligation is quickly dissolved into the ought of opportunity. When I begin to be saturated and understand and fill my mind with just how good God is, and the, the reality is in his goodness, he wants the very best for my life. It absolutely increases the quality of the life I live. Because I live as a child, secure, hopeful. I live absent of fear, worry, anxiety, because I'm living in the goodness of God. But it also continues to be the main motivator, the thing that inspires me most to just continue to give my life to him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. Why would I want to do anything else when I begin to comprehend how good God is? Why would I want to do anything else than to just continue to give my life over to him? More holy, more completely. And central to understanding what it is to have that quality of life, the abundant life, to grow in Christ, to have the transformed life, is, is to grab a hold of what it means when God says he is a God who for gives. Forgiveness is central to this idea of God's goodness. Obviously, it's a story of man, right? From the garden, from the first couple chapters, we recognize that there is a God who creates a people and he's in fellowship with them, and yet this people decides to choose their own way and they sin against this God. And the story then becomes all through the rest of the history of mankind, even to this day, is what do I do with my sin? How do I handle my failure? What is that, uh, how does that affect my relationship with God who created me? I would say at the very forefront of experiencing and living in God's goodness is to embrace this idea of God's forgiveness. I was uh, thinking about Ravi Zacharias this week. Uh, you might not know who he is, but he's one of the, the voices that God used in powerful ways. God called out and used in powerful ways over the last 40 years to be an apologist for the Christian faith. 
to continue to present the gospel in all, all throughout the world. And God used mightily. It just died uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, just reading uh, about uh, his interactions and, and thinking about how he would interact often with the Muslim world. He was one who would say, hey, I'll be willing to talk about Jesus to anybody, anywhere, at any time. And so often he would be in Muslim countries presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he shared this one story of sitting down or uh, of how the Muslim world thinks and how they act and their idea of God and forgiveness and Allah and forgiveness. And essentially it boiled down to, I'll save you the details of the story, but the Muslim cleric saying this statement, forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. Forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. You see, this idea of forgiveness in our world has been very distorted in so many ways. Our sinful uh, nature uh, that then begins to rely on self-sufficiency has a hard time truly entertaining and embracing this idea of forgiveness. And so we live without forgiveness, or we create a forgiveness that is conditional, or we we create religions that offer forgiveness, but it comes along with certain price tags. Forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. How do you deserve it? If you do this, 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 and this. And in this whole idea of forgiveness, the Bible continues to present this simple, consistent, yet powerful, life-changing truth of the forgiveness that God offers. This is what he says as he, as he kind of jumps into, all right, I'm gonna unwrap, unpackage the forgiveness of God for about 18 verses or 20 verses. He says quickly, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord, all my soul, O my inmost being, and forget not all his benefits. And what's the number one benefit he leads with? It's this, who forgives all your sins. The goodness of God begins with the forgiveness of God. Listen, there's a few things I want to share with you that are more conceptual in nature. And then I want to end with what Jesus presented, how we should understand how God feels about us and how he acts towards us in this way. But I want you to grab a hold of the fact that forgiveness is this part of life that restores my relationship with God. You see, it begins, any kind of living in the goodness of God, living in relationship with God, receiving from, experiencing this life that God has and the goodness that he is that overfills in my life. At the core of that is this idea of being forgiven and understanding what it is to have experienced forgiveness. Who forgives all my sins. You see, forgiveness restores my relationship with God. The, think garden, think sin, think a fallout of, 
of relationship with God. I, I love this phrase, whenever there is sin, the sinner loses something that is outside of then the sinner's power to regain. And that's what happened to us. But you quickly understand that the story of God, his disposition toward us, is to quickly move in an initiating way to do something about wanting to take care of the sin that we have committed and now that we have become. Think about, I, I've been thinking about this this, this week. Uh, remember when man, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they realized that what they've done and they know God is coming to talk to them and for the first time they feel guilt and shame. They recognize there's now a disconnect. They have sinned against their creator. And remember what they did. They, they then, out of that sinfulness, their mind was open to that world and they discovered their nakedness. And remember, they covered themselves with uh, fig leaves, right? Or twigs. I don't know what it was. Some kind of grass, right? They're covering, they're trying their best to cover themselves. And God comes and, and you remember the interplay. But what does God do? God replaces their figs with animal cover, covering, right? Because God could have been like, nice try. How's that? You know, like, but, but his attitude, instead of being <clears throat> like uh, contrary in nature to the point, he is already starting to move toward them, to offer them something. Here's a covering for the nakedness that now your sin has exposed. Then you begin to see the story of God all through the Old Testament and you realize this complex sacrificial system that he institutes. It's all built around this idea of forgiveness. That in the sacrifice, in the contrition of heart for their sinful behaviors, and in the sacrifice to God for that, there is this idea of God's covering over their sin with the bowls of with the blood of bulls and goats, right? For a temporary time purpose. But you know where this is going, right? Because it all is culminating in the person and the life of Jesus Christ. As he is the manifestation of how God really feels about what has happened with his creation. And you see, it's, the psalmist is writing this, realizing that, God forgave then, we live on the other side of Jesus and we see the beautiful, most perfect picture of a God who consistently desires to restore relationship with his people and how that needs to be restored is forgiveness needs to happen and God has acted in a way so that that can happen. And what the cross is screaming to us. And what God has always done for us is that forgiveness is unconditional. There's no attachment to it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't bargain for it. Forgiveness is not based on a promise to never do it again. This is how we live in relationship with one another so often. This is how marriages happen. I'll forgive you if you won't do this. That, 
The forgiveness of God is well beyond that. It is unconditional in nature. It is an other kind of love that God is just desiring for us to completely embrace, even though we are, we're like, I don't really get that. But it is at the, fount, at the core of the fountain of living in God's goodness is to embrace this forgiveness that comes from God. And this forgiveness of God is given to us even when we don't make a promise to never do it again. Remember Jesus stretching out his hands on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Guess what? In that moment, nobody had asked for forgiveness. Nobody had said, please forgive me, Jesus, for what they are doing. He just offered it. He took the initiative. Because that's at core of what the forgiveness of God is. It's God moving toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners mean back turn, rebellion, fist up, not even contrite at all, and yet God is moving toward us. That kind of love creates an unconditional attitude of forgiveness. And to live in the goodness of God is to first of all be completely embracing of the forgiveness of God. Remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and murders, is responsible for the murder of her Uriah, and then he's confronted about this, and he realizes how far he has gotten away from God. He prays to God and says, have mercy on me. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sins. Notice what David didn't do. He didn't try to cut a deal or negotiate a settlement. He didn't say, now God, I'll do this if you do that. He simply said, help me, forgive me, cleanse me. That is the nature of the forgiveness God offers. And we are so fallen that it is very difficult for us to truly embrace this. We kind of get the idea of it, we move toward it, but then we think we need to do some things. Or we need, and the, the grace, the love, the mercy that God offers is completely unconditional. Can you grab a hold of that this morning? And this is what restores our relationship with God, is a God who moves toward us offering complete forgiveness, no probationary period, no deals cut, no settlement, no promises made. It's simply, yes. This is what Colossians says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He is taking it away, nailing it to the cross. I would simply say this, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. God forgives instantly. God forgives completely. 
God forgives repeatedly. God forgives freely. So that's kind of conceptual. Let's move a little deeper as the psalmist is trying to unpack this idea of forgiveness. It's woven through in different places in this psalm. Who forgives all your, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins. That's God's disposition. That's his nature to just freely, undeservedly, yet unreservedly forgive. Then he comes back and he visits it in verse 9 or verse 10 when he says this. He does not treat us as our sins deserve and repay us according to our iniquities. What I, what I want us to understand as we begin to continue to understand the forgiveness of God is it restores my relationship with God because God forgives, but it also redirects the penalty for my sin. You see, so many people would listen to what I just said and say, that sounds too good to be true. That's not reality. That's not the world we live in. Something's off here. And the psalmist comes back and says, I want you to understand this forgiveness that God offers to you freely in the fact that he does not, he does not treat us, uh, us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. What, what forgiveness has done is it's redirected the penalty for our sin. Forgiveness is not a compromise of morality. Don't ever think that God would confuse moral clarity and moral responsibility with grace and forgiveness. It's not one or the other. Forgiveness is not a violation of God's justice. God will never compromise his justice. Forgiveness is not to forget, to condone, or to overlook. You see, there was a penalty for our sin. And the forgiveness that we experience that, uh, that we now get to not pay uh, according to what we deserve was in the idea of Isaiah 53 and 6 when it says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Your sin did cost. It's not like this whole idea where God's like, you know, I'm just gonna forget it. Just, just forget it. No biggie. No, it did cost. But it cost Christ, our Savior, and our Lord, his life. And so this idea of forgiveness is fleshed out, and it's not just too good to be true, and it sounds like hocus pocus, and I really can't buy into that because... Uh, are you, yeah, no, it really did cost. There is a sense where our, our, our natural uh, created being does think that when there is sin, there should be payment. That is a natural part of the justice that God has in, instilled in our life, the fairness, the moral compass. Yes, 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 and yes. But God did something about it when he hung on the cross for our sin. This is not too good to be true. It's not a fairy tale. Christ took our place and he was repaid. He was paid for our iniquity. He took what we deserved on the cross. This is why the cross is central 
to our understanding, our relationship with God. This is why uh, we, we, we should never live outside the shadow of the cross. Because in being restored in relationship with God through forgiveness, we realize that forgiveness was really a redirectment of the payment, the penalty of the sin I should have, I should have taken. Christ did. And that's why when John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Why would he be faithful and just to forgive us? I haven't done anything. In fact, I've, I've caused the mess. I've held my fist in front of the creator. I've done my own thing. I've forsaken his goodness and his love. I've right thumbed my nose at him. Why, when I confess, is he faithful and just? There's been nothing that I have done. He is faithful and just because the weight of the atonement of Jesus Christ tips the scale so much. And now what is fair is for God to quickly, freely, unreservedly forgive me. Amen? Amen. Yeah. See the conceptual realities. And so it's simply the gospel calls for us to admit, to accept responsibility, and then to ask for forgiveness. I'm, I'm speaking to the choir today, I'm sure. But our world has a very hard time doing this. Why? Because inherently we want to do something to earn any good thing. And the gospel says, forsake everything about yourself and lean completely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't trust in anything that you have. See yourself for who you truly are. All we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. (laughs) Trust Simply in a forgiving, loving God. What I love about this psalmist is though he continues the progression to flesh out a little bit more what it means to experience the forgiveness of God when he says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What what inherently happens to us who are sinful Because we are sinful, we live with guilt and we live with shame for our actions. Amen? And the psalmist reminds them that in this idea of embracing God's forgiveness, which is core to living in his goodness, is this idea of a God who looks at our failure, understands our past, and does not associate it with us any. See, it's easy for us to think about I'm forgiven, but I still walk around marked, branded by my, by my failures, by my past, by my sin. And God is trying to tell us, hey, listen, the way God sees you, as far as the east is from the west, you get the idea? How many of you want to sing the casting, song, casting crown song right now? Right? That's how far... It's this idea of helping us to disassociate from any guilt or shame that we might live with because of our sinful past and behavior. (laughs) 
Forgiveness removes the shame of my failure. Guilt, shame comes from our sin. We try to bury it. We blame others. We beat ourselves up. Most of us carry shame as a result of our own sins and failures, the way that we haven't measured up in our eyes, in God's eyes, in the eyes of others, or from sins committed against us that have left us feeling a deep shame about ourselves, all of that ball of wax, what God is trying to communicate to us, that grab a hold of what it means to be forgiven by God. It means to be restored in relationship with him. Um, and it means this, that God will remove the shame of all of your failures. New life in Christ means this is who you were, this is what you did, this is your past, and God removes it as far as the east is from the west from you. He does not associate you with that no longer. Remember, I think it's in Jeremiah that it says that he will remember. It's his, our sins are cast into a sea of forgetfulness being remembered against us any longer. That's how thorough and deep the forgiveness of God is. And so conceptually, I want you to grab a hold of that this morning. But then I want to share this story that Jesus would have shared. How does God feel about us? What does the Father do? He says this. There was a man who had two sons. This is a story about the father. We call this the story of the prodigal, but this is actually a story about the father who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In an honor-shame culture, in a culture that was built on family, generational, building the, the business, keeping it in the family, passing it on, inheritance, Huge. This, in essence, was one of the most shameful things that could have ever been said in that culture. A culture that's built on honor and shame, built on commandments. Honor your father and mother, right? That had, that had worked its way through Jewish life and thought until it became one, at the pinnacle of what it was to live in that culture was to honor specifically the father, the patriarch of the family. That's what you were supposed to do above everything else. Honor him. And for this younger son to walk in and say, Father, give me my share of the estate was in essence to say, Dad, I just really wish you weren't even in the picture anymore. And for a first century Jew listening to that story, they probably would have gasped audibly because this is about as horrific a thing that could be said. And they knew what would come next. <laughs> the father would disown the son. The father would shame the son. The father might even most probably kick out the son out of the family and disown him and even have a funeral because of this kind of shameful behavior. That's what they're ready for. But God says that the father divides his property between the two sons. Deuteronomy said that the older son got two-thirds. This is working out for me. I don't know why we don't go back to that. 
And the younger son, this one would have got a third. Obviously, this father's wealthy because the son realizes that if I can just get a third of what's coming to me, if I can get what's coming to me, I'll be able to fund my rebellion. I'll be able to do what I want to do. I'll be able to get out of the, the, the family uh, influence. I just want to do whatever I want to do. And I don't care how shameful I am, how insolent I am. I just want to do what I want to do, right? That's at the heart of what this story is. But the father, instead of responding to shame, the son, he gives him what he asked for. Not long after, and I'm, I'm abbreviating all my notes here. Not long after, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. In these, this language, it's this idea that it was bad enough that the son asked for his inheritance before the father had died, in essence, wishing that the father was already out of the picture. But not only does the father say, okay, I'll start to let you manage all of this, the idea in normally the word and used in and what you would do with gathering all that he had was, okay, so now I'm, I'm taking over the one third, but I'm going to assume the responsibility and how to manage it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make decisions on how to make it more prosperous. No, that's not what the son had an, an idea at all. In fact, what he did was he simply wanted to take the stuff that he had been given, that had been blood, sweat, and tears, generation after generation after generation, what had been poured in for him to inherit and then prosper and to hand on. No, not at all. All he simply wanted to do was get his inheritance now so he could then go liquidate what he earned so he could have money now to go do whatever he wanted that's what he does. He sets off for a distant country. And again, you got a Jewish boy going and living in a Gentile land. This story is just absolutely shameful. And the Pharisees who are listening to this and the Jewish people are listening to this say, what a jerk. What a horrible person. What an, you know, all this. And yet, what is God doing? Or what is Jesus doing? He's revealing what we need to know about the relational disposition of God toward us. Because we all represent this one who has lived shamefully, who has lived willfully, who has taken all the good things God has given to us and we've squandered them. We've misused them. We've decided to use them for our own selfish, temporary pursuits. Right? So this son ends up in a Gentile country and he squandered his wealth in wild living. The, the older son would later reveal that he actually squandered his wealth on things like harlots, right? After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country. Uh, the, the, him spending everything was his deal. The famine in the country is just life, Right? that comes in this broken, fallen world. And he finds himself, he finds himself beginning to be in need. <laughs> this is us, people. Like, we, we take what God's given to us and, 
and we use it for ourselves and we try to find and, we, and then we exhaust it and we realize that everything that we've pursued after really hasn't fulfilled us. And we begin to live in need, empty and broken and lost. That's this son. So he decides now he needs to do something about it. Well, that's human nature. I need to fix it, right? And so he hires himself out. This word is he glued himself to a citizen of the country. <laughs> he, he was unrelenting and like this guy was like, yeah, I don't really need you. No, you really need me. And finally, he just wore the guy down until he said, okay, just go take care of my pigs. And again, there was this... <gasps> Because now a Jewish boy is not only in a gen, he's not only lived about as shamefully as you could toward his father, he's forsaken and squandered the whole family inheritance. He's now went to a Gentile country and he's lived completely opposite of what he had he known was he was designed to live. But now he's feeding pigs. And you know, Jewish people won't even, they're not gonna eat pork, they're not gonna touch pork, it's unclean. In fact, it gets to the point that he gets so hungry that he begins to eat what the pigs were eating because no one gave him anything. This is such a picture of the sinner. This is who we are. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned to our own and sinful living always, always leads us to this point. Eating the same stuff the pigs do. Oh, it might not look that dirty in your life, but the things that you're trying to bring happiness and hope and satisfaction and fulfillment and purpose, they're doing nothing but just leaving you empty and hungry, and so pursue this, and you gotta do this, and now you're after this, and now you're trying to fill it with, that's where we end up without God, in the far country, is it not? That's always the story of humanity, doing their own thing. And when he came to his senses, he says, whoa, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I'm starving to death. I mean, at the father's house, even the servants are living way beyond what I'm experiencing. I will set out and go back. And I will say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. This phrase is, I have sinned so much that my sins stack up into the heavens. I see it. And I'll come back and I'll earn my way back, Father. Just make me like one of your hired servants. I just would rather be in your house and be like a hired servant than having to live like I am now without you away from your house, right? And to him it makes sense that, and what would have happened in that culture if a son would have come back from this kind of life, he would have been shamed, he would have been made a public spectacle. The whole village would have, would have participated in shaming him. A father would have put him on a probationary period. He'd have made him sit in the city gate for weeks just to bear the shame of how you have disrespected and dishonored me. You need to get the point. A lot of times a father would say, I, I don't know that guy, he's dead to me. 
You'll have to figure it out. But if a father was willing, there was a whole process of earning it back. And that's what the son was thinking. I'll go back and I'll be contrite and I'll admit and I'll just become a servant. And maybe I can just live the rest of my days out as a servant in the father's house, right? Made sense to him. The Pharisees would have been smiling. This is the first sensible thing about this story. That's what makes sense now. So he gets up and he goes to his father. This is what you need to know about forgiveness. The disposition of the father toward us. The conceptual realities that we've talked about is now relationally uh, given to us in the story of Jesus. But while he is still a long way off, his father sees him and is filled with compassion for him. And he runs to his son. Again, I mean, for us, we read that as cool. First century Jew, it's like, whoa, this is beyond. Like, what in the world? There is no doubt the father, when he saw him, he had been looking for him. He had been longing for him to return. He had been aware and attentive to maybe today my son will come back. See, he in his heart had not been living with a sense of I've been disrespected and I'm going to make him. No, he just wants the, father, the son to come home. That's what he desires more than anything. And so it's obvious Jesus is trying to say that the father had an eye always out to maybe today the son will come home. That is the heart of the father who always desires the child to come back home. And then also in this idea of this story, to run to him is not only to desire to be with him, but he also knows he's gonna have to walk past the village. The shame's going to start. The scorn's going to start. And he thinks in his heart, I would rather be scorned than my son be scorned for his behavior. I'm willing to make a fool out of myself. Uh, Middle-aged Eastern men of this, they didn't run. It was, it was undignified. It was below. They had to pull up their robe. They had to show some leg. I mean, it was just like, you don't do that kind of thing. And yet he is sprint. The word is sprinting to the son because he wants to be with the son, but he also wants to spare the son the shame and scorn of the village. And he's saying, in essence, I'm willing to take the shame and the scorn. I'm willing for this story to be reversed. And instead of, hey, did you know Ricky came home? It's more like, hey, did you see what Ricky's father did? He like went, ran. He made a complete idiot of himself. Absolutely. Because that is the love of the father who not only wants to be restored in relationship with us, but he wants to remove shame from our life in a complete and total manner. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. There is no probationary period there is no, well, I told you, should have listened to me the first time. That didn't work. That's not the disposition of God with us. Can I please get an amen? amen. This is the Father. This is his heart that forgives. All he cares about is son coming home, you coming 
home, you living completely, unreservedly, undeservedly forgiven, knowing that there's nothing you did. In fact, you did the opposite of what you're supposed to do, and yet the Father forgives completely just because he wants to be back in relationship with you. I mean, look at, he says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called. And the father says, nonsense, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers. All these things have such huge meaning. There was no servant. It was quickly restored to the position of son. All these things are the honor. What a a shameful son is honored in this way because the love and compassion of the Father. That's what it looks like for God to forgive. And I simply want to remind you that living in the goodness of God is to live completely forgiven. And I just want you to soak in that this week. I struggle with this, I'm gonna be honest. I know what it means to to be forgiven. I remember the night that I finally gave my life to Christ. I remember walking for hours in the dark in in a wooded area, just overwhelmed, flooded by the peace of God as my life now was gonna be completely different. I knew what it was to be connected with God and to experience the peace of God flooding my heart. And yet, so often what happens is I experience that forgiveness from God, but somewhere along the way, it can be easy to begin to morph back into, I need to do this for God to accept me. I need to do this for him to love me. And now that I know him, now I'm on this thing where if I don't, then I have to, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Instead of living every day, every day, understanding what it means to be completely forgiven in that day, regardless, regardless if I've backed up, if I've messed up, if I've failed. The heart of the Father doesn't change. It's always the same. This is the disposition of the Father to consistently, continually, and completely forgive. And to live in the goodness of God is to to live completely forgiven every day, every moment. If you're like me, you need to remember that. And you need, like me, to open your heart always and consistently. (laughs) The love of God in Christ Jesus for you every moment of every day. It's that idea of a God who runs, sprints toward you. He still has that attitude about you. To live in the goodness of God is to experience the forgiveness of God. This song, man, has been burning in my heart for a couple weeks. And you know what? If I had a good enough voice, I'd sing my own song today. Sometimes you gotta sing your own stuff, right? So I'm going to stand down there. I'm singing pretty loud. But you're not going to hear me. You're going to hear better singers. But let's let this set the tone for this week. 
and understanding what it means to live in the goodness of God. Thanks again for listening in today. And thanks to those who give so faithfully so that together we can continue to be the light of Christ in this generation as you sow into the life and mission here at NAPNAS. If you feel led to give or to learn more about NAPNAS, simply head to napnas.org. There, you'll find previous messages as well as everything going on in the life of the church. And if you found value in today's message, would you share this with a friend or on social? Because it is together that we exist to help people take their next steps in a transforming relationship with the Prince of Peace and King of Hope, Jesus Christ.